0: Well, it's lovely to see you and Happy New Year. Uh, We are going to be doing through this January, we're doing a little series called First. And what we're going to do is look at the spiritual habits or the spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, the the basic things that Christians do to put God first. That's the idea of the series is what are the, the ordinary things, the praying, reading the Bible, giving, evangelism, those sorts of things. But things that we do in order to put God first. How do you build a life? That put god's puts god first at the center how do you do that and for a christian there's not many more important questions really our whole lives you say well what to what it is to be a christian a follower of jesus is to put god at the center of our lives to put god first jesus said in matthew 6:33, very famous passage we said you seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness And all these other things that you worry about, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live, all those other things will get added to you as well. But what you need to, God will take care of that. What you need to do is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, the kingdom of God is our priority. And I don't mean the word priority in the modern sense of one of many plates we're spinning. You know, oh, how many, what are your priorities for the year? Oh, I've got 11 that's not what the word priority really means prior means first the thing you literally put first in your life and the kingdom of god jesus is saying is not just one of many things you do obviously i need to make sure i get my you know get in shape my health and perhaps we're going to work on my marriage and my kids or my career and also on the kingdom of god that's another jesus is saying no 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 you put the kingdom of god first and the other stuff will get added to you as well. So some well, I mean, we're going to make G- the kingdom of God our priority in the literal sense of the first thing in our lives. So if someone says to you, what's the most important thing in life, that we would say, well, the kingdom of God. God and his glory. And of course, many of us would answer the question in exactly that way. That's why we're here. Praise God. That's what a follower of Jesus is. And spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines, or spiritual practices, or whatever we call them, are the things that we do in order to put God first. The priority, in other words, is not the, the spiritual habits or the practice. It's not, The priority in your life is not prayer, or reading the Bible, or evangelism, or giving, or whatever it is. The priority is God, and those spiritual practices are ways in which we put God first in our lives. They're ways in many ways to help us centre our lives on God and his kingdom. And that's quite different from the way that spiritual practices and habits are used in other systems of belief and other lifestyles, in secular and religious, actually. There's a lot of people in this country, I know a bunch of people for whom it's important that they meditate or practice mindfulness or yoga or whatever. It might be a spiritual habit that they have. It's not only Christians who have spiritual habits, right? But they do those things not with a view to centering their lives on God and his kingdom. Actually, they do those things primarily for their own well-being, for the benefit of their mental health or their physical health. That's why they practice mindfulness. It's not to center their lives on God. It's actually to help them in, in their well-being. And it may well do that. And I had this just the other day. I, you know, I drive a lot and Sit at the computer a lot and write a lot and read a lot. So I, my, my shoulders aren't great, my neck and my movement. And I was, getting, ah, I was really hurting. And Rachel said, oh, you should just go and get a sports massage. And I did. And it was amazing. It really helped. My movement's much improved. But one of the things she said while she's, mad, this woman says to me while she's massaging me is, oh, you should do, just do some yoga. And as it turned out, I didn't. But it's like a spiritual practice that people use, but really not for, to center your life on God or anything. She just meant to help your own health. And that's why some people do spiritual practices. It's to help their own well-being. Well, the Christian isn't thinking that way. The Christian says, actually, when I pray, when I read the Bible, when I share the gospel, when I give, those things may well help my well-being. And I think they do. But that's not why I'm doing them. I'm doing them because I want to center my life on God. I want to put God first, not me first. And that's why I'm doing it. And the motivation of spiritual practices for the Christian is also quite different from the motive that a lot of people have, even religious people, in doing spiritual practices for the sake, in a sense, of achieving something or establishing our own credentials in righteousness. Like so, there's a lot of people who do spiritual practices, to kind of, to earn a bit of credit as a religious person, or to feel like they are contributing something to their spiritual growth, or perhaps even their salvation. That's why a lot of people say, I'm going to pray, or I'm going to read the Bible, or read a sacred text, or whatever it might be. I'm going to share the gospel, or the news, or the. I'm going to go and preach to a lot of people. And they do those things partly to have something, some righteous achievements that they can lay before God as they understand him and say, here's, here's what I've done, God. And that, again, is not the way Christians think about spiritual practices, or we shouldn't right? Some people probably do, but that's not what we're praying, reading scripture and so on for. We're praying and reading scripture because we want to put God first, and those things help us to do that. We're not seeking first the habit, and we're not seeking first the credit that comes with it, and we're not seeking first ourselves or our own well-being. Our priority is the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and someone explained this to me years back. It really helped me he said, spiritual habits are like, you know, when a child wants to, a small child wants to reach biscuits, but the biscuits are in a tin. My, my daughter does this. The biscuits are in a tin that's up high, out of reach. And eventually the child gets to the point where they know that if they pull along, a, drag a stool or a chair, they can climb onto the stool or the chair and then reach the biscuits. And you come in and you find them, as I often do with my daughter, halfway through that process, mouthful of something. And you think, no, ah, no, 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 no. Now, spiritual habits this pastor said to me that spiritual habits are like the stool or the chair that you use to stand on to get what you really want which is god they're not the pro you don't obsess over the, the chair or the stool that's not what you know obsess over the prayer or the fasting or the giving that's you need to do it but you do it in order to get something you really want and that is god and his kingdom and his righteousness and that's the reason why we do these things and that's what because we put god first and so In this series, we are gonna consider four basic habits that help us put God first in our lives. And we're gonna begin with prayer. And I'm gonna read from two different passages, actually. One from Mark chapter one, and the other in Matthew chapter six. This is Mark chapter one, verses 32 to 39. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demonized. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. And now Matthew chapter six, verses five to 15, familiar words, I imagine. And when you pray, this is Jesus speaking, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door. Pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of God. All four gospels show us how devoted jesus was to prayer and that is remarkable if you think about it because christians have always affirmed jesus is fully god jesus in a sense has has access to all the power he needs to do whatever he wants to do and yet nevertheless he gives himself over to prayer on a daily basis because he's also fully human and it's in his humanity that he needs to pray and he's modeling for us how to live the life of a disciple of someone who follows him and all four gospels show us that commitment that rich devotional prayer life that Jesus had but the interesting thing is that when you compare the four gospels Matthew Mark Luke John you'd see that they show us Jesus's emphasis on prayer in interestingly different ways so Luke is usually agreed to be the gospel that puts the most focus on Jesus's prayer life because Luke's always going on about the fact that Jesus is whatever he's doing he seems to be praying at the same time so Luke will often say this, you know, and he's the only gospel writer who will mention that when Jesus is being baptized, he's praying. Luke 3.21, or when Jesus is healing, he's praying. Luke 5.16, or when he's calling his disciples, Luke 6.12, he's praying. When Peter confesses him as the Christ in Luke 9.18, he's praying. When he goes up the mountain of transfiguration, Luke 9.28, he's praying. When he's on the cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. So Jesus is praying all through Luke. It's like very, very frequently, and there's many other references and parables he tells about prayer, teaching on prayer. So Luke Luke emphasizes Jesus's prayer life as a gospel by telling us how often he did it. John gives us a different take. So John doesn't show Jesus doing that all the time in quite the same way. But what John does is he gives us much the longest prayer in the gospels, in John chapter 17. And it's so significant because it's right before Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified and then rise again. So John 17, sometimes called the high priestly prayer, is this long prayer that the very end of Jesus's ministry right before his death It's the last speech he makes in before he dies. And so John gives us an emphasis of Jesus on prayer by saying this is what his whole, all of his his teaching and his debating, his miracles, they kind of build towards this prayer. And then as soon as that's done, he then gets arrested and is crucified. So Luke does it by showing how frequently Jesus prays. John does it by putting it right at the end in this sort of climactic, long prayer speech. Mark, who we've just read from, does the opposite of John mark does it very briefly but he does it by showing that jesus not only prayed at the end of his life but he actually prays at the right at the beginning of his ministry and right at the beginning of the day prayer is in mark literally first it's the first thing jesus seems to do and we discover that in that i think it's an amazing passage we just read from mark one it might not strike you as particularly amazing but when you stop and think about it jesus has it's a saturday jesus has gone to synagogue like he normally does He's cast out a demon, which is quite an eventful occurrence, and it causes quite a kerfuffle. Then he leaves, and he goes for Saturday lunch at Peter's mother-in-law's house. She's got a fever, so he heals her, rises her up from her bed, and then she waits on everybody. Then after sunset, because word has now got out that Jesus is a healer, the whole town bring their sick people to him, and he ends up healing people and casting out demons into the night. And then it says... Mark 1 having been up late into the night healing people, says very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In other words, Mark is showing us that the, the kind of the daily life of Jesus, even when he's up late healing and ministering, he's up early to pray. Now imagine you can't sustain that life on no sleep and you've got to be sensible, all that sort of thing. But It's the challenge, I think, of Jesus's firstness of prayer that he's committing to do that before he does anything else in the day. And then in Matthew, you've got yet another way of showing how central prayer is to Jesus. John has it at the end. Luke has it all the way through. Mark has it at the beginning. And then in, in Matthew, prayer comes in the exact center of the most famous block of teaching in history, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, you may not go to church. This may be your first time, but you've probably come across some things that are said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's extremely famous teaching. And uh, at, right at the heart of it is this, again, the most famous prayer I've ever prayed, which is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And Matthew puts, if you like, the Lord's Prayer in the centre. You can see on this, this sort of triangle on the, on the, on the screen. So that what happens is that the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is arranged in a, in a sort of like a triangle. It sort of starts and ends with the same kind of thing. Jesus goes up, Jesus goes down. And then these, these famous blocks of teaching that you are blessed if you do this, you are, this is what will happen to you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then you've got the two ways on the other side, chapter, in late, chapter 7, about There's two types of trees, and two types of path, and two types of builders, and that that bit. Then you have a reference to law and the prophets, chapter 5, 17, and chapter 7, verse 12. Then you have, in most of Matthew 5, and much of Matthew 6 and 7, you have the you've heards, but I say, and you have the do not, but rather, and those two blocks of how to live the Christian life. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you this, and the don't do this, but rather do that. And then in the middle, you have these three sections on spiritual habits. When you give, when you pray, and when you fast. And the one in the middle is the when you pray, uh, which we call the Lord's Prayer. It's right at the heart of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And if you drill down into a little bit more, go on to this next page, you'll see that even the Lord's Prayer itself is also arranged, like you might say, like a triangle. It's like we've got the... The spiritual habit of prayer is itself structured with a centerpiece and with sort of mirror image bits moving up the sides. So the section begins and ends with a pray like this. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Pray with humility. Pray with forgiveness for your enemies. And then it says, our father, your name, your kingdom, your will. So it begins with God. And then at the center of the prayer on earth as in heaven. And then it goes to what we need, our bread, our debts, no temptation, no evil, and then goes back to pray like this. And so what you notice when you see that, that structure, I think, is, is partly to sort of show you the shape that Matthew is putting prayer at the very, and Jesus is putting prayer at the very centre of his major block of teaching, saying, in a sense, the central reality I want to draw your attention to as a disciple is, this is how you pray. And even within that prayer, there is a center, which is this cry for things to be on earth as in heaven. So you notice that the Lord's Prayer is in two halves? There's a, a God half and a human half. The prayer actually begins first with God, our Father. And actually, in English, we kind of lose this. So we often think that the phrase on earth as it is in heaven only applies to your will be done but actually it doesn't. in some ways, the three clauses rhyme, if you know what I mean. They, they have the same structure to them. It, well, you might more, more naturally read it. Hallowed be the name of you, may come the kingdom of you, may be done the will of you on earth as in heaven. That's in a sense how it would read in, in Greek and in, in English, it's difficult to capture that. So we tend to break them off into different petitions, but it's saying, no Lord, I want your name to be made holy I want your kingdom to come, and I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the kind of God half of the prayer. And then there's a human half of the prayer as well. And in the human half of the prayer, we then say, this is what I need. I have basic provision that I need. Daily bread. I sin. And so I need you to forgive me as I forgive others. That's the debts. And I need to be kept safe from temptation, which is the evil within, and from the evil one, which is the evil without. And I need to be preserved from all of those things. And I found that even in, in my own prayer life, I've had days, well, one, one day years back, my kids were in a very difficult place and it was a really hard time for us. And I went and spent a day in the, I said to Rachel, I'm going to go to the woods and I'm going I'm to pray for the kids. And I never got through the first, I tried to use the Lord's Prayer as a matrix to pray. I never got through the first half because I was so struck as I was walking around in this wood praying, wanting to pray for my kids, that actually the Lord's Prayer is all about God. And I, I actually never got out of it and just found myself praying and worshiping for the whole time I was there and eventually got the end like as I was walking back to my car, it's like, oh Lord, please also give us breakthrough with the children. But actually I spent so much of the time focusing on God because that's what the Lord's Prayer does. And it leads us in such a way to call on the world to be on earth as it is in heaven with the name and the kingdom of the will of God being fulfilled. And that's the way actually a lot of major you know, Christian teachings are structured. The Ten Commandments, four about God, six about us, the Lord's Prayer. First four things about God, last four things about us. The creed, all about God, and then comes to us towards the end. And so it's just worth reflecting for a moment on how the Lord's Prayer is almost structured and how it sits in the middle of this giant, meaty block of teaching to show you and me how central prayer is to the life of Jesus and to the life of the believer. If we take the four Gospels then together, what you find is that in Mark, prayer is Jesus' first thing. In John, prayer is Jesus's last thing. In Matthew, prayer is Jesus's central thing. And in Luke, prayer is the thing that Jesus is doing all the time, scattered everywhere. You could just say, my first, my last, my everything, right? That's prayer for Jesus. It's just, it's what he does at the beginning, it's what he does at the end, it's what he does all the way through, and it's what he does in the center. And I think there is wisdom there for our daily lives as well. Some of us will find that if we don't start the day with prayer, with a time perhaps in the word of God and praying it back to him or however you do it, that the whole day gets out of shape. And this is, I'm quite wired like this. I find if I don't pray and read the word near the beginning of the day or at the beginning of the day, it often either doesn't happen or the whole day is kind of off, off center until I get there. And George Mueller, I love this quote, I've often quoted it, but George Mueller, the great prayer warrior of the 19th century, said, my first duty in the morning is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That's what I've got, because until I've I've done that, I'm no use to anyone because I'm looking for happiness elsewhere. So i have got to start the day with first, prayer being first. Others of us will say, I actually find it indispensable to pray at the end of the day. So I find if I don't pray at the end of the day, almost before I go to sleep, I find my, my night is a mess. My dreams are all over the place. I worry. I need to commit the end of the day to God. And again, Christian tradition has got a lot of wonderful prayers to pray at the end of the day. And I remember hearing American pastor Tim, Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, they writing a book on prayer and saying, actually, we, we had this revelation a few years ago that if somebody had said to us, look, there is a drug that you need to take every night, it's a little pill you need to take every night or you will die. Because, it, because you're so at, at risk of this thing. You need to make sure you take this pill every day. You would find a way of remembering. And then they said, we decided to treat prayer like that. And we've done it basically every day, even when we're in different countries. We've, we, we speak on the phone and we will pray together even briefly at the end of the day. And so there's a sort of prayer first, there's prayer last. And then others of us have a, have a, find it more natural to us that we will pray frequently and briefly throughout the day. At mealtimes, you know, we say, I'm always pray before a meal. I always pray when I, at a loo break. I find myself always triggered to pray and give thanks to God in the shower. I just so enjoy probably having a shower. That's what it is. Some of us have reminders on our phones. Some of us will stop in the middle of the day to pray. So these little sort of breaks throughout the day, and again, a, a quote I've often used, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I heard it from, saying, never resist the least urge to pray. So even that tiny little nudge, why don't you pray now? Never resist it. Make it a commitment to when the Spirit says to you, pray now, take him up on it. That's just a good habit to get into. And I actually, even with my, my boys, I, I often do this where we'll be playing football and we're really enjoying it. And I want my boys to associate prayer with fun things and thanksgiving. So I'll we'll often say at the end of the right, huddle up, huddle up. Let's just give thanks to God. And the boys, one of the boys will have to say, thank you God for football and fun and dad and whatever, because I just want to build prayer into that habit as well. And then of course, there's you, many of us will have a combination. We'll say, I want to pray at the first and at the last and all the way through the day. And then all of those things will help us put, prayer, put God first in all of life as we look to pray in all kinds of different ways. And I'd actually encourage us to do all of them, but according to, you know, personality and life stage and when our energy is up and down, we may tweak and do things differently from one another, but actually to, to seek to pray in that sense as often as we can. But there's one prayer habit that Jesus didn't seem to have that I think is also very helpful for us to have, and which the early church practiced from the start. So i tried to show you from all four Gospels how Jesus prayed, but there's something the early church did that Jesus didn't really do. Mostly, Jesus prayed alone. Now, there are some interesting examples where Jesus said in Gethsemane, I want you to come and pray with me and There's an interesting passage in Luke where he says Jesus was praying on his own and the disciples were there. You think, what's that about? How do you be alone with other people there? But mostly Jesus prays on his own with just the Father and the Spirit for company. But from the very beginning of the church, the early church said, yeah, that's not all we need to do. Jesus could do that because he's Jesus. We need to pray together. We need to gather together. And so from the very beginning of Acts, the early church practiced corporate prayers, not just solo prayers they met together to pray, like we're going to as a church this week. It's as if they knew that they needed each other to break through in prayer together. Now, I know I do, right? My prayer life really suffers if I don't pra- pray corporately sometimes as well. If it's just left to me, I'll tell you what happens. <laughs> this probably says a lot about my soul. But when if, I, if I'm left to pray only on my own, what happens is my prayers become selfish. Now, I'm actually, I, what I find is I find I'm regularly, able to give thanks to god i I like doing that and if i'm on my own i'll often start with thanks that just comes it seems to come out of my heart i find that quite natural but my prayers overall become narrower they become more focused on what god has done for me or what i want god to do for me and private prayer i find is great for thanksgiving for adoration just worship for confession of sin for praying scripture and praying for my circumstances but I find that if I don't pray corporately, I struggle to intercede, to call out to God for the church as a whole, for the nation as a whole, for the nations of the world, to pray militant prayers of spiritual warfare, to call out to God for encounter, for others, for healing, for freedom, for justice, for deliverance. And I find I'm not very good at praying for those things on my own when I'm walking around the Cater Estate saying, yeah, Lord, I'm generally praying for me or things that come natural as an individual. And I need to be in a corporate prayer setting personally to have the prayers of the church fire me up, not only so I can hear them, but so that they spark that same desire for me for the same things. And for that, I need the church. Now, you may be the same. And even if you're not, we're going to be gathering every night this week to call out to God together because corporate prayer is something the church has always practiced, knowing, I think, that although Jesus can pray on his own all the time, we really need one another. But let me finish with a word of encouragement. I hope this will be encouraging. You might struggle to pray long prayers. You might say, I just run out of steam very quickly in prayer. You might find it difficult to use the right words. You say, my prayers just sound repetitive or not very, not very eloquent, not very clever. You might struggle to pray in front of other people. You think, I'm worried people are listening to me. I'm nervous about coming to the prayer meeting because other people might hear what I pray and they realize it doesn't sound very good. That might be you. I think many of us struggle with that. And you might have concluded from those things that you're somehow bad at prayer or prayer is just something you're no good at. So here's what Jesus says about long, elaborate, wordy prayers that are performed for the benefit of people listening. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's what Jesus says about the length and the eloquence and the visibility of your prayers. If your prayers are simple, short, invisible, and lacking in eloquence, Jesus says, they're exactly the sorts of prayers that your father loves to hear because he already knows what you need. And he's already on the edge of his seat wanting to answer them and give you what's best for you. Hypocrites pray to convince people that they're spiritually impressive. Pagans pray to bang on, the, to convince the gods to give them what they want. Christians pray to express faith and hope and love in a father who loves us more than we can imagine and wants to give us all that we need. And we know that whatever we ask, he hears us and has already committed to give us whatever is best for us. It's like the Heidelberg Catechism says at the very end, that little word, amen, you say when you finish a prayer means this will truly and surely be, it's even more certain that God hears my prayer than that I truly desire what I pray for. Brothers and sisters, on earth as it is in heaven, amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, Lord. May your will be done here on earth as it already is in heaven and give us today every practical thing we need from bread to help and forgive us all of our sins as we forgive all of the sins of people who sinned against us and lead us not into the temptations that would otherwise we would fall into but instead deliver us from the evil within and the evil without and the evil one and all he would do because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and we love you amen